And at the time, it wasn't that like one day I just switched from being a biologist to a photographer. At the beginning, it was like, oh, this job is going to help me be a better scientist. All of my photography is a way of trying to bridge a gap between what's known and unknown. How do I play with both beauty and curiosity to leave a lasting impression of wonder? On this episode of Change the Narrative, I talk with National Geographic photographer Anand Varma, who works at the intersection of art and science. This is Change the Narrative, the podcast about innovation in work, life, and culture. I'm your host and tour guide, Michael Hernandez. I made this recording on April 29th, 2020. It was the height of the pandemic lockdown. No one was driving to work, and the city was unusually quiet. For anyone who lives in a small town or the suburbs, what you're listening to might not seem so special, but for me, someone who lives in the middle of Los Angeles, hearing wildlife so loudly right outside my window was a revelation. I enjoy nature, but I've always thought of it as a distant experience that I had to travel to see. The granite domes of Yosemite, the Grand Canyon, Even hikes in the local Santa Monica mountains are at least a 30-minute drive from my house. It's easy to forget how wildlife and nature are all around us, despite our best efforts to pave over and control it. The pandemic made that imbalance and our unhealthy relationship to the natural world abundantly clear. The invisible creatures that shattered economies and killed millions of people didn't stop at arbitrary borders, and it's only because of a group of experts with a special skill that we even have some semblance of pre-pandemic life in the US. What is that special skill? The scientific method. Observation, testing, drawing conclusions based on measurable facts instead of intuition alone. But more importantly, it's the ability to keep asking tough questions and admit when your hypothesis is wrong. Like Maya Angelou said, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. There's a special danger that comes with believing a narrative that you're infallible and that somehow the laws of nature don't apply to you. Because we are so far removed from nature, we've lost that sense of wonder and respect that helps us understand that every system is interrelated. What will it take to restore that sense of curiosity and reverence before it's too late? Anand Varma grew up exploring the woods near his childhood home in Atlanta, Georgia. As a teenager, he picked up his dad's old camera on a whim and found that he could use it to feed his curiosity about the natural world and to share his discoveries with others. Anand graduated with a degree in integrative biology from UC Berkeley and now uses photography to share the story behind the science on everything from honeybee health to hummingbird biomechanics. He works to reveal the invisible details around us with the goal of sparking a sense of wonder about our world. Since receiving his first grant from the National Geographic Society in 2010, he has photographed numerous stories for National Geographic magazine. In between assignments, he teaches workshops on visual storytelling to early career scientists around the world. Thanks for joining us, Anand. This is really an honor and a privilege to have you here on the podcast. So you started your career actually hoping to become a biologist rather than a photographer. How did you end up on that path and what's that been like for you? Sure. No, this whole photography career, uh, I kind of fell into sideways. I, I, I wanted 
to be a marine biologist since I was 10 or 11. And I was really pretty focused on doing that. And I was taking biology courses at Berkeley, thinking about where I wanted to go to graduate school, thinking about what I wanted to research. Uh, but then I got a summer job. I got an email from an instructor saying, hey, there's a photographer looking for an assistant. I see you with a camera on the field trips. So I thought, well, you know, a couple weeks, summer internship type of thing. And that, that job just opened up doors for me. It, it really showed what was possible to do career photography and how I could really do everything I wanted to do as a biologist through photography. My parents were pretty supportive. I think they were skeptical in the sense of like, well, have you thought this through? Do you know where this <laughs> is going? Like, do you have a plan? I remember my dad specifically said like, hey, do you have a plan for how this is going to work? <laughs> and I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of like, not really, but <laughs> this makes sense. This feels right. And at the time, it wasn't that like one day I just switched from being a biologist to a photographer. At the beginning, it was like, oh, this job as a photographic assistant is going to help me be a better scientist. This is going to help me understand where I should go to graduate school. It helps me understand what the careers are after getting a PhD in biology that are not necessarily being a professor somewhere. My first job was with a National Geographic photographer, David Lichwager, and the first job was in the national park working with a cave biologist. The second job was working with uh, NOAA scientists. The third was working with uh, independent consultants who had gotten a PhD in marine biology. And so to me, this was like a world expanding experience that was going to help me understand the landscape, help me understand better questions to pursue in research. And so it was not like it was a one day switch. It was a very slow transition in which I started realizing okay, the questions that I'm curious about, the things I want to learn, I can learn as a photographer. And actually, I get more freedom to explore the questions I want to learn about. And I get more freedom to kind of explore a wider range of questions from canopy biology and the rainforest to coral reef ecology to botany to Neanderthals. It was like oh, wait, I get a much wider range and I'm not as constrained as I would be if I went to graduate school and I really had to pick a narrow research question. <laughs> and, you know, my dad was a photographer as a kid. I mean, he, he's, he, he retired as a doctor, but he was interested in photography uh, throughout his life. And so I think it was interesting for him to watch me kind of pursue this more professionally. I'm sort of curious about this intersection between art and science. You've created some of the most stunning images I've ever seen, um, whether it's your series on the bees or ultra slow motion video of hummingbirds. And of course, the insect parasite shots that make the entire <laughs> auditorium squirm when they see them. So it, it's interesting that your images sort of transcend mere documentation. Do you consider your photography to be a form of storytelling? Sure. I mean, storytelling is like kind of become a strange word and that it gets batted around all the time. And, I, and it sort of is a bit of a vague term, but I, I guess I think about storytelling as a way of conveying information or ideas in a structured way. If I want to talk about the way that this parasite interacts with its host, I could do that in a very objective, like detailed, precise way, or I could try to connect that to something that is relatable and familiar and understandable to an audience that hasn't really been thinking about this a lot. So I really think about 
all of my photography is a way of trying to bridge a gap between what's known and unknown to that particular audience. And that, that audience is, you know, the general public who's generally curious about the world. I want to talk about this cricket that gets attacked by a worm. Well, how do I show that in a way that's both familiar enough that a person walking down the street could look at this picture and think, huh, there's a bug. And I don't know what the name of that bug is, but I can tell from the way this is lit, from the way it's composed, that there's something weird going on. And that's really all I want. I need that audience to know as a starting point. But if I'm too particular, I'm too, I, I can make a decision that would be confusing or disorienting or unfamiliar to the point where somebody walking down the street and seeing this picture is just going to say, like, I have no idea what that is, and it's, that's completely irrelevant or uninteresting to me. And so I'm trying to find this balance between how do I, the photography, the visuals in something that's recognizable, but then balance that with enough mystery that makes somebody want to learn more about it. Interesting. So do you ever feel like serious scientists uh, roll their eyes at your work? It's kind of like, I know, like Bill Nye, the science guy, for example, I know that some scientists look down their nose at him at what he does. And is there a stratification or classification for you as a professional based on who that audience is? That's something I'm constantly worried about. That's not getting taken seriously by the scientists whose work I'm trying to depict. Uh, that's something that I worry about a lot. It's something that I'm constantly trying to check back in with the collaborator, with the scientists to say, like, is this accurate? Is this framing right? Am I showing the right thing? Um, and for the most part, I think I'm, I'm supported by the scientists whose work I'm illustrating. I think mainly that's because I'm not necessarily pretending to be the one who made the discovery. I think I'm often mistaken as the researcher who discovered this thing, and I often have to push back and say, no, 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 this is not my work. This is not my discovery, my research. Like, this is my interpretation of somebody else's work. It's often the public that does that. And so the scientists, for them, I'm just like this way of visualizing their subject material in a new way. And they're often excited to see details they're not used to seeing or framing in a, in a new way. And so I've mainly gotten positive feedback from the scientists who think, oh, this is cool. You know, you're not doing pseudoscience. You're not uh, an illegitimate scientist. You're like a cool photographer. <laughs> so... <laughs> I haven't gotten pushed back from the scientists so far, but it's something I'm constantly concerned about. Yeah, science is, is definitely about observation. So I'm curious if you've ever flipped that model and have you inspired or had any scientific discoveries happen because of your photography rather than the other way around? In a way, and that's really where I see my work going in the future. It's like that kind of happened by accident through a video I made about honeybees where I got feedback from scientists saying like, hey, there's parts of this life cycle, there's behaviors here that we didn't know were happening at this stage. And that really kind of sparked a light bulb in my head. I was like, whoa, I accidentally contributed new information. Because up until that point, I'd really been focused on how do I take information that's already known and package it in a way that is exciting and interesting. Short way of describing storytelling is like, how do I package information to make it memorable? And so with that B video, I started thinking about how can I be more proactive in thinking about how I can actually contribute to the science while documenting it at the same time. I guess story is often built around, you know, evoking emotion, 
And you certainly do that with the images that you create, um, whether it's inspiration or awe or surprise or just being grossed out. Isn't that kind of counterintuitive for working in the sciences? You know, it, it's funny. I think that was another discovery that I made midway through my career. It was like, I really thought at the beginning, my job was to convey information. Like, how do I get people to learn about new things? And now I don't think about it that way. I think about the information that I convey is only in service of trying to cultivate a feeling about that subject. It's like, I feel like my job is to try to evoke an emotional reaction to the subject material that sparks a new relationship to that subject. Like I want somebody to feel something about this weird bug because that is something that will stick with them longer than any fact or a bit of information. And so it's, it's been interesting to think about that because it's like the information is actually a key part of that emotional response and that emotional relationship. Because I think the imagery alone can be beautiful or colorful or nice to look at or nice to have as a postcard or a wallpaper, but without any information, without any context, it's just a decoration. So I'm thinking about, okay, what information about the biology, about the science of the subject connected to that visual representation actually combines to form some sort of emotional reaction? How do I play with both beauty and curiosity to leave a lasting impression of wonder? That's great. I feel like as a teacher, we have to do that all the time. There's definitely standardized tests you could force the kids to memorize and take the test, but then they're going to forget it, right? And so, first of all, how are they going to pay attention? Um, How are you going to make sure they understand this is important? It's through those very humanistic experiences and feelings, right, of wonder and awe um, that will make them want to learn more or be curious about the world, I think. So, Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. You know, when I think about science and storytelling, and I think most people might assume it's like, you know, dry paragraphs of text in an academic journal. Do you feel that images are better suited to conveying information than words or numbers? I think images are a really powerful way to start a relationship, to open the door. You know, I don't necessarily believe that an image is the best way to explain a complicated idea. I think words are necessary to kind of get at the nuance of a relationship of a system. But the image to me is just the starting point. And actually that was best conveyed by my editor for my first story about parasites. He was like, your job is to get the reader to stop flipping through the magazine and want to read the caption. And ever since then, I think, oh yeah, that is the singular goal of my photographs and videos, it's like to get somebody to stop scrolling through their phone or scrolling through a magazine and say, wait a minute, this seems worth learning more about. I don't necessarily think that visual imagery alone gets the job done, but it can be a really powerful way to get a conversation started. One of the things that really resonates uh, with me about your work is that you're very transparent about your process. Um, in your TED Talk and your YouTube videos, you often talk about your equipment and show time-lapse videos of you, you know, working and doing your setups and stuff. And you're very upfront about how you get your shots. 
And that's very different from my experience where most professionals are very protective of their trade secrets. You know, they don't really tell people how they do it and they want to keep the sort of like sense of mystery or magic around their work. Why are you so eager to share your process? I learned so much about photography from the internet. I also worked as an assistant to a number of amazing photographers, but they were so advanced in their careers that it was hard to learn the basics by watching David Lichwager take a portrait of an ant. It's like uh, lighting, light quality, hard light, soft light, exposure, all that stuff, all the technical aspects of photography. I really had to teach myself through blogs and online resources in which other photographers openly shared their process. And so I kind of felt like I came up in a world that was all about kind of open source knowledge. So in some ways, I felt strongly about sharing my own kind of learning processes. That was one motivation was a sense of like giving back to a community that I gained a lot from. Secondarily, I think it's just really satisfying to share a process of like, here's how I constructed this light. And you get that same kind of positive feedback of like, oh, wow, that's a really cool process. But thirdly, it's like I'm working at this weird intersection of art and science in which I don't quite fit the journalist category and I don't quite fit the artist category. And those two worlds exist with different sets of rules. And so I find the way to exist safely in that intersection is to be completely transparent. So people don't feel misled by my process in any way. It's like I'm photographing a hummingbird in an enclosure. I'm photographing an ant on a glass slide. And I don't want anybody to ever feel like, wait a minute, I thought you told me that that was happening in nature. And now that I'm realizing this, I feel disappointed or lied to or manipulated. Initially, the first time I set up a camera pointing back at me, it's like, here, I want to be completely transparent about how this happened so that you know the right context in which to think about this photograph. And you can focus on the cool aesthetic aspects and there's not this additional like, hey, did you manipulate this? Did you lie to me about this? Yeah, I feel like cause as a journalism teacher, we have discussions all the time about the perception in the public about the work that you do and sure. how much is manipulated and how much is honest and what kind of, what does integrity mean? And, um, and I know a lot of professional journalists are having those conversations too. And I think the, the move at the moment, since journalists are not really trusted in our society right now, for whatever reason is showing them the methodology and pulling back that curtain. Right. And also like to earn respect, like this isn't easy. You know, I imagine like people are like, ah, that's a cool photo, but I could do that with my iPhone. Or maybe you can, um, but to like see all of the work that goes into it and all the technique and the trial and error and all of that, um, it earns you street cred, I think. But also, like you said, to like show that you're not making this up, that this is actually a real thing that's happening. Yeah, that was that was super surprising to me with parasites. I was like, I was so worried about people judging a, a sense of manipulation and say, and being disappointed that this happened in captivity or this happened inside of a lab. And the reaction was actually the opposite. I had people telling me like, oh, I thought that was completely a, a digital illustration. Like I didn't realize that was actually a real photograph until I saw the behind the scenes and heard you describe how you took that picture. And so it was, I was actually sort of fighting the opposite battle. It was like the assumption was that it was way so manipulated that it, was, it didn't even get the sort of legitimacy of being a real photograph. And so I kind of gained more credibility by showing the process behind behind the work. And that, that actually taught me an interesting lesson about like, okay, how do we value process versus just the end result? 
like why do we care whether that tiger was photographed in a zoo or in the wild if the end photograph is just as beautiful and at the end the tiger itself like is still a tiger it's still as amazing as any tiger is who cares whether there's a fence behind that tree or not and the fact is we all care we all care about the process we all care about imagining what the photographer or creator or artist went through or journalist to get the story that was an interesting lesson in itself of like your emotional reaction to that image is based not only on the individual pixels or the individual droplets of paint and how they come together to form a representation but it's also how that image came to be like that that has an impact in how you feel about the thing that's not obvious to start with you know right yeah um, i totally agree i remember when instagram came out a lot of pro photographers would dismiss the work that was created on Instagram is not being photography. And I got this sense and I always have as like a filmmaker working in Hollywood that there's a stratification of if you're legitimate, if you're a professional, you have to suffer for a long time, pay your dues, have expensive equipment. It's a matter of access and equity. Um, And that was always sort of a barrier. And I feel like the same thing, especially for photography and the art world, it's maybe more difficult to do a painting or carve a marble sculpture than it is to take a photograph because we've all done thousands of photographs ourselves and so we're very familiar. And so there's like a a sense of um, if something's good uh, based on a matter of a level of suffering uh, or cost of some kind, whether it's a technical cost um, or a, a physical and emotional cost. And so maybe that's where some of that struggle comes in, that transparency that you're showing is like, you are, you do have this cost. Like you can take the photo of the tiger, you know, in, in captivity, or you'd have to trek across, you know, thousands of miles through a jungle and get bitten by mosquitoes and all this stuff to get your shot. In the end, you have the same shot. Yeah. And I think that's, can be both legitimate and problematic. It's like, I think it should exist, but I think it can also be arbitrary and silly. It's like when you look at that story behind how an image was made and you just think, well, that was completely unnecessary. Like you did 10 times the amount of work for no reason other than to talk about how many mosquitoes you were bitten by. Then it's just, it's completely silly. And on the other hand, it it actually should matter what the process was. It, It should matter because that's an interesting way to relate to the story that's being told. It's an interesting way to relate to the storyteller. It depends on what your goal is. If the goal is to open your eyes to the wonders of the natural world, there can be benefit to sort of relating to me as a storyteller in the process that went into taking that image. It can sort of humanize the process. You can think about scale. You can think about, you can be the, the portal in which somebody who's unfamiliar with that subject sees this new thing. Or you can be the distraction and you can become the subject in that, in that way, you become the story and all of these pictures you take are just ways of amplifying your own ego. A thing that honestly is another balance that I try to be aware of, where it's like, how much does turning the camera back on me enhance the subject that I'm trying to amplify? And how much does it actually take attention away from the subject that I'm trying to get you to connect to? Uh, and I don't know that I always get it right, but it's something that I try to find the right balance for. For much of your work, you're often creating new machines or specialized setups um, to get the images that you need. Um, And it reminds reminds me a lot of what a researcher might do as they run an experiment, you know, rather than what an artist might do. Do you see similarities between the scientific method and the artistic process? Absolutely. Yeah. And 
And I wasn't so aware of that until I talked about this, my process, or I showed my process to friends of mine who are scientists. And they would look at that and be like, that's exactly what we do in the lab. You know, it's, it's a lot of iteration. It's a lot of experimentation. It's 90% you're banging your head against the wall and you feel stuck. And then at the last moment, everything can kind of fall together and you can really make a lot of progress in one big leap. But it depends on this like months and months of tinkering and experimenting and failing and trying again. And uh, there's something satisfying to me about that, that it's like I kind of left a career in science, but in some ways I brought a lot of the tools that I learned and, and the mindset to this other field. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about that process actually that you go through. How long does it take to complete an assignment from the time you like, you get the assignment until you deliver the final images. Typically one to two years. Wow. And that's something that I think is now taking longer and longer as I try to tackle more and more complex stories and, and projects. Let's say I want to take, talk about mind-controlling parasites. What does that even look like? Which creatures should I take a picture of? And then, okay, well, how am I going to take those pictures? How many pictures do I need? How many pages is that going to take up? And those questions kind of inform each other. It's like this conversation with an editor who's saying, okay, you need to get the reader to stop in their tracks. And you're going to get 15 or 20 pages to do that. And you're really probably only going to be able to do that with one picture per subject, per parasite. So there's, there's some, something about the medium and a conversation with an editor or a director that kind of sets the sandbox in which I'm going to play in then it's, it's a matter of kind of digging into the science and, and reaching out to the experts and saying, okay, this is the creature that I want to photograph. I think I want to photograph it in this way. Realistically, how am I going to get my hands on this thing? So it's, it's, it's kind of gathering as much information about the biology of this subject to help me pick a moment that has the best visual potential. That's really interesting. So I know a lot of us struggle with constraints of one form or another, time, sure. funding, whatever. Um, what, what's the role of um, constraints for you? Do you feel that it's uh, beneficial to your work? Could you work in, and be successful if you didn't have any constraints? Uh, that's the question I'm struggling with right now. It's like, what, what degree do I want to have a boundary? I do know you absolutely need limits to work under. I mean, the question I have is, are those limits that I can construct myself for myself? <laughs> or do I need somebody else to tell me when to be done and how much to make. And that I don't have an answer to. I am hoping that I can <laughs> develop a level of maturity that I can construct so I don't have to take marching orders from somebody else. But <laughs> for now, I just I don't know when to be done. You know, there's always something better, something to improve, something to you can get a better photograph, you can do more research, you can better understand the creature, there's more papers you can read, there's more people you can talk to, there's, there's always more to be done. And it's really hard as somebody who kind of wants to perfect every element of it to arbitrarily say, you know, this is good enough. It doesn't need to be any better. I don't need to know any more about that. I don't need to get this any sharper. I don't need to get this any more refined. It's, it's so far been an impossible task to impose those constraints on myself because it feels completely like an arbitrary compromise. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, having somebody else say, we would like you to photograph this thing in this way by this time. It's kind of like, what? Why? no, why am I doing this? Why am I doing something that's uninteresting or unimportant or not beautiful because somebody else tells me to do it?
Mm-hmm. And so I'm stuck between those two modes of like, okay, well, how do I find a set of constraints that feel necessary? And then how do I do the best job I can within those real important limits? Exactly, exactly. And what's the saying? Like, you never really finish a piece of art. You just kind of stop working on it and walk away. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, you think about a storyteller, they're like, you know, sitting behind a typewriter in a Paris apartment smoking cigarettes and just like cranking out their story, right? But I'm sort of curious, what's it like to be a collaborative storyteller, especially for people who might not have storytelling as like a background? All of my work is completely reliant on a scientific expert to help me understand the sort of biological landscape of this creature. You know, somebody who can help me get a feeling for how this creature goes about its life. Working with scientists, that can be challenging in the sense that somebody who's, who's dedicated their life to understanding the system, they may have a particular sense of like what is relevant and new and important. And that doesn't always match up to what's most relatable and interesting to a not, non-expert. I want to photograph a different aspect of this creature that mm-hmm. you might think is boring. So that can be a point of, of, of tension. And, and my obsession is making something beautiful and somebody else's might be telling a compelling narrative. Mm. And that, that can sometimes bump heads where it's like, well, I get that that's a more interesting story in terms of conflict and tension and anticipation, but I don't know how to make what you're talking about look good. And if I can't figure that out, then that's a problem for somebody else to tackle. <laughs> that can be another point of conflict in, in, in collaborations about like what to, what to point the camera at. So how often are you, do you get to say, I told you so? <laughs> like your way was the, the better way <sighs> for your audience. I don't know that I've ever felt that way. And, and also collaboration, it's like, it depends on how you define that. Oftentimes I'm kind of latching on to their existing project and gathering information and doing my own thing. And I don't necessarily mm-hmm. feel like that scientist looked at my work and thought, hey, we agreed on this thing and you did something weird. It was sort of just like, oh, you took a thing that I'm working on and you, and you made a new thing out of it. More recently, that's been a bigger and bigger part of, how, how I think about these projects, like, okay, how do I combine my skill set with somebody else's and make something together? How does that work? How do you figure that out? How do you do that? If I don't have things? an answer to that at this point. <laughs> I don't know that I've made something yet that feels like a collaboration in the sense of like an equal contribution to a project. I work with a good friend of mine, Jason Jacks, on, on a TV show. Even then, it's like he sort of had his realm of documentary filmmaking and I had my realm of like trying to photograph these bats and we it it certainly was a collaboration in the sense that we talked about the storyline we talked about the priorities we talked about what we were going to do that day but we kind of had our own little aspects of that to work on and that was something that was actually a project that really made me feel like I should think about my future projects based on my collaborators more so than even the question that I'm most interested in. In the past, my projects have been a halfway mix between ideas that I came up with versus ideas that National Geographic asked me to, to do. And working with Jason on BATS was kind of like, oh, this is the thing that I've been missing is a partner to start the day with and end the day with. It was so much fun working with him. And it, and it filled this need I had to just be able to talk to somebody about the project that I felt was missing in my past work where I'm like alone in a hotel room questioning why I'm there. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's an endless number of questions to pursue. I want to pick the ones 
that allow me to work with the people that are the most interesting and fun to work with. But it's a tricky balance when I'm also somebody who's like deeply stubborn and uh, <laughs> set in certain ways <laughs> and don't want to necessarily compromise. Right, for sure. I definitely feel the same way. Uh, it takes more than one log to build a fire. Yeah. So what, what do you think separates a good story from a great story? I think great stories are complex and I think they are memorable and I think they're memorable for how they make you feel and how much they surprise you. I think that those are, those all, those are all things that kind of work together to strengthen how you respond to a story and how, how you respond emotionally, I think is the main thing that controls how well you remember it. Hmm. I think a great story is one that really sticks with you for a long time. And why do you think some stories would stick with you for a long time? Is it just because they're like uniquely surprising or? I think they change the way you see the world. I think they challenge your assumptions about how the world works. And so as you walk down the street and you see how a tree branches or how a bird collects nesting material or how you see clouds form or how you see people interact, it's like, if a story has changed how you think about the evolution of life or the shape of the earth or how cultures have transformed over time, I think they give you a new lens for how to see the world. In my mind, that's the way to stick with somebody. It's like you're, you're giving somebody a new window into the world, a new tool for understanding how the world works. And that can be in science, that can be through humanities that can be how you relate to people, how you relate to natural world. And the, the part that I feel like I've tried to carve out for myself is thinking about how to shape the way that people relate to the natural world. And that's the little piece of the puzzle that I'm trying to work on. Why is that so important? My own relationship to nature has been a sort of central part of my life and examining why that is and how to share that with other people just feels like what I want to spend my life doing. How does that relate to science? Science to me is just a way of seeing the world. It's a way of trying to interpret the information that's coming into your eyeballs and into your ears and into your nose. It's a framework for trying to understand information. And so in, in that sense, like science is just a tool set for trying to understand the world around you. What I'm trying to do is like refine that tool set of how you look at the world and be able to share that tool set and say, hey, here's what I've learned about reflecting on my own life and my own way of relating to the world. I hope you find this useful too. Hmm, that's really noble. It's a really noble thing to do. Hmm. Well, we'll see if that's really my, my motivation. Is It feels good. All I can say is it feels good. So maybe there's a noble aspect, but there's also a selfish aspect in there. Yeah, I think there always has to be some uh, nugget of selfishness uh, to motivate somebody, but then the ability to share that passion with someone else is really, really uh, kind and generous. A lot of your sources of inspiration for the visual look of your photos come from pop culture. Can you tell me a little bit about why pop culture and how do they inspire you? Well, I don't know that I necessarily like set out to remix pop culture with natural history. It was just a matter of like, this is a story that most people aren't interested in. It's too gross. It's too weird. So how do I, as a photographer, make this cool? And I think that's kind of the way that I think about all my work. Like, okay, how do I make science cool? Well, I take a thing that I think is cool, and I try to 
steal a bunch of ideas from it and apply that to my photographs or video. Like one of the things I thought was cool as a middle school kid was like anime, Japanese, Japanese animation. And it, there's something about how it translates motion and energy and action through this kind of like stuttery epileptic energy to it that I'm just like, whoa, this can, this kind of holds my attention in a way. Like how do I borrow that stimulating visual approach to try to hold somebody else's attention onto a weird ant or bug? Um, and so, yeah, I think, and again, I don't think that was intentional from the beginning, but I sort of have seen how I've kind of done that on accident in the past. I'm trying to be more intentional going forward about, okay, how do, what do I see in my world around me that's cool and it can hold my attention? And how do I learn from that to apply to my own work? Um, what are some projects you're working on right now that you're excited about? I'm currently working on a project about jellyfish and trying to show how their weird and wacky biology can help us rethink about the complexity of life on the planet. Well, that's easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's been super hard. I'm a couple of years into it, but it's really fun. Oh, that's amazing. Um, where can people connect with you and find out more about your work? Sure. Um, I think Googling me, you can sort of find YouTube videos. Um, my website's a little out of date, but hopefully by the time there's have some fresh links and things up there. So um, website, YouTube, Vimeo, all my stuff's out there. That's fantastic. Well, Anand, thank you so much for insights. It's really been fascinating talking to you and uh, I love your work. So thank you so much for taking the time. Sure, happy to do it. Find links to Anand's work and his YouTube videos on our website, changethenarrative.net. And it's not, it's not just about listening, it's about hearing. If you send me a CD and it has bass clarinet, along with cello, along with my, what is this? I'm definitely gonna play this and I'm gonna listen to it intently. It might be super crazy, but it might be super crazy good. You know what else is super crazy good? the radio show hosted by jazz advocate and KCRW DJ Leroy Downs. I heard his set one night and knew I had to get him on the show. So I spoke with him about how he curates innovative playlists and how getting fired from one of the top radio stations in the country was one of the best things that ever happened to him. Jazz is having a moment right now and he shares some of his favorite picks and the role jazz plays as part of the racial justice movement. He's not what you think. He's even better. Check out the jazz cat next time on Change the Narrative. Change the Narrative is written and produced by me, Michael Hernandez. If you like the podcast, rate us and write a review. It helps people find us. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. You can find details on our website, changethenarrative.net. <laughs> <laughs>